here. Thank God for his goodness and his grace. Let me get this on here. that are glorifying God for his greatness and his goodness, and I'm thankful that that is true. Amen. I've heard people say sometimes that God never disappointed them. Uh, I don't say that. I've been disappointed uh, several times that uh, things I prayed for that God did not see fit to give or to do, things I requested and I was disappointed. I don't never say that God never disappointed me. What I say is, God never failed me. <laughs> even when I was disappointed, even when my prayers were not answered, at least not according to, to my uh, desire and my request. And, uh, and I was thinking again of that song, and he's right on time. Well, he's on time on his time. <laughs> Sometimes on my time, I thought he was late, but he never was. But I did think that he was late, but he wasn't. He has a higher purpose. I, I think of that parable that Jesus taught, and uh, uh, John, uh, the gospel tells us uh, the purpose of that parable. Uh, not very many parables uh, we, are we told that. But in the, in the parable of the unjust judge and the widow that came to him, we are told that Jesus told that parable to encourage his disciples to pray. And in that, in that there's a delay of justice. Uh, this woman, I'm not going into the whole story, but... This woman had a complaint, and this judge, he, he didn't want to fool with her, and he would not uh, take action to bring justice. But she kept coming, coming. And uh, it, the purpose of, the, of the, the parable is to teach us to hold on, to importune in prayer. And, uh, and she finally did. The unjust judge, he didn't, he didn't answer her request because he loved her. He didn't answer her request because he was a godly man and concerned. In fact, the scriptures tells us that he didn't regard God or man. But the reason that Jesus said that he was moved to action was because of her continuing and holding on. That teaches us something. Uh, you know, and then he said, he said, shall, uh, shall he find faith when he comes? And he doesn't mean that there's not going to be anybody saved. But what he was referring to is the kind of faith that he was trying to convey in that parable. And that was faith that continues to trust in God even when it's not answered, it's delayed, 
And then Jesus made a statement. He said that if the unjust judge answered that person, said, how much more? God. (laughs) Because God loves us and God's just and God is, of course, merciful. But he said that he, he answers them speedily, though he bears long with them. Now, that's a contradiction. Bearing long, answering speedily. And what it was to teach us was that even though it is long, it's as soon as God sees fit that it's right to answer our prayer. Do you understand that? Do you see that? Sometimes uh, our prayers are not answered, and at least not in our time frame, and uh, sometimes they're not answered at all. But we continue. Well, no is an answer, by the way. I mean, God answers prayer because no is an answer. But it's not answered in the way that we had hoped it would be. But what Jesus was trying to do is encourage us to continue to hold on to God, to hope against hope. That's what Abraham did in, uh, in uh, Romans. It talks about Abraham and said he hoped against hope. And what that means is he continued to hope when there was no grounds for hope. He continued to hold on to God when it didn't seem like there was anything to hold on to. And God, of course, answered his prayer and uh, has blessed the nations through his seed. But I just wanted to encourage you. I know you're going through a stressful time. I know that. I know enough uh, from, well, communicating with some people and also from just things that have happened that you're going through a difficult time. One of the things that sometimes encourages me when I'm going through a real difficult time Uh, I tell myself, if this doesn't kill me, it's going to make me stronger, you know? And and it just encourages me because when I come to it, I'm going to be better off. Brother Elder, you need to turn on your speaker tonight. Okay. There. Thank you. I wish you'd have spoke up earlier. But did you hear me? Most of the time, I guess this thing picks me up. I've got a pretty strong voice. It was much stronger when I was younger. I've been preaching. One time I was preaching in a tent. I don't know if you ever preached in a tent. But a tent is a, it's a hard place to preach because the, the canvas of the tent just absorbs the sound waves. And, uh, but I was preaching, and there was a young man that wanted to know just how far my voice could carry. And uh, so he, he walked out of the tent and kept walking through the field and down towards the road and to the highway, and, and he could hear me, and that was without any mic and without any loudspeaker, but he could hear me. I've been preaching on the street sometime. My wife never did like that because she... she the way we got our street meetings 
started was she'd play a recording and start a song. And she just didn't like that at all. But I've been preaching on the street sometime, and people two blocks away turn and look to see what's going on. But I got a strong voice, and I hope that you heard what I had to say, because I'm trying to encourage you. You're going through a difficult time. Well, the first message, I'll get to what I have here, I think, soon. But the first message that I preached, in fact, I preached the first message on Sunday morning after, after Brother Bartlett had his farewell service. And I, in that message, I was warning you, I told you one of the statements I made, this is maybe not word for word, but I said that there's hardly any congregation that goes through a, a transition of pastors that it doesn't have some kind of a division or a split. I've done that to try to help people to stay together. My hope was that people would stay together even though they disagree. And then I preached the last time I was here on Paul and Barnabas showing how good people can disagree and both of them be right, and, but they couldn't work together. And I've tried to help you see that the dangers that you would face during this, during this time. And uh, the, it's a difficult time. But some, of course, did not eat. I was hoping that you'd stay together until you got a new pastor. And then if things didn't work out according to whatever your conscience might be on any matter, then then you'd have to make your choice of what you do. But some folks did not take that advice. We have a problem. Uh, you know, we, ha we, we have a message, uh, come out message. And uh, we're called come outers. And almost every one of us here, there may be some exceptions to that, but almost every one of us here have come out of some congregation sometime along the way. So that since we have that mindset, it's so much easier for us when things are not going our way to divide than it is to stay and try to work it out. You know, working out problems is hard. It's hard work. It's hard on you. It's, uh, it's hard on everybody trying to work through problems. And so it's so much easier for us to just divide. I mean, hey, then you're, then you're done with it. Sometimes in congregations, there's things that need to be corrected. Your first, your first choice should be to stay and try to help correct it, not to leave, not to leave, but to stay and help correct it. And uh, of course, if you find that impossible, then you have to make the other choice. I preached um, on a couple occasions in my life. When is it time to leave a congregation? I'm not going to do that here this morning. 
But when is it time to leave a congregation? Because all of us know that there, there does come a time when conditions in a congregation, if it deteriorates, it's, uh, and you can't do anything, there's nothing that can be done to correct it, uh, and so on, and I'm not going to go into it. But there is a time to leave a congregation. But it's not our first response to problem. The Bible teaches very clearly that we as God's people ought to stay together and try to work out the problems that may arise. And problems do arise. See, a congregation is a living organism. And any congregation is just a moment in time. It's just a moment in time. And after that time passes, uh, the, the congregation, uh, there may be still people in the building and the, there may still be, but it's not the same. It's not the same congregation. Every congregation that I ever pastored was a moment in time. And uh, I mean, it's completely different. Uh, and was when I, after I left. But in, in this moment, I believe that my advice to you is what it was on the first Sunday that I preached. Stay together, work out the problem if you can, and if you can't, then you have a choice to make. But it shouldn't be our first response. Amen. Amen. I mean, that, to me, that's very, very clear from the teachings of the Word of God. And, but it, it, takes, it takes effort, faith, perseverance on our part to do that. Some of us are too lazy to put forth the effort. So it's easier just leave. But wherever you go, I'm telling you, wherever you go, whoever you take with you, sooner or later, some of the same kind of difficulties going to arise. It, that's the nature of it. That's the nature of it. And God has given us instruction in his word how we are to deal with some of those things. Well, that's what come to my mind while I was listening to the Psalms. I have a message on my heart and I hope that you listen. I'm going to pray before I start. Heavenly Father, I come before you with a thankful heart. I thank you for the thousands of times that you've helped me, Lord, to preach and sometimes very powerfully and other times I've had some struggles in preaching. But this morning I pray that thou will help me so I can help this people. I want to be a blessing and a help. Father, they're in a difficult situation. Uh, some of them don't know what to do. Some of them are, are rolling over their options in their mind. But I pray that thou will help, dear God, as I give a little bit of instruction along one of the things that may be needed. I ask that you'll guide and direct my mind 
Help me, Lord, to say it in a way that the Holy Spirit can take my words and make your message out of it. I ask these things in Jesus' name, and amen. I'll take it from a text uh, in James, the book of James, the fifth chapter, verse number 16. Confess your faults one to another and pray one for another that ye may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. I've entitled my lesson, Some Thoughts on Confession of Sin. This text that I read to you is in the context of praying for physical healing. Uh, it tells us if, I'll just read the context, it's to help you understand what, what, what the writer really meant. Is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. That's verse 13. Is any merry? Let him sing psalms. Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick, and the Lord shall raise him up, and if he hath committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. Confess your faults one to another, and pray one for another, that ye may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Elijah, Elijah, Elias, it says here, which Elias is Greek and Elijah is Hebrew, but talking about the same person. Elijah was a man subject to like passions as we are, and he prayed earnestly that it might not rain, it rained not on the earth by the space of three years and six months, and he prayed again, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth brought forth her fruit. Here you can see in the context he's talking about praying and getting an answer from, from God in behalf. And the context here is for physical healing. It's for diseases, afflictions of various kinds. And it tells us what to do. First of all, the person, if they are sick and afflicted, they need to pray themselves. Second of all, they can call for the elders of the church and let them pray over them. And then it tells us the prayer of faith shall save the sick and the Lord will raise him up. And then it says here, if he hath committed sin, and he's not saying that the sickness was because of sin. That's not... That's not his point here, but he's just, he just saying if, and that's a conditional clause, which means there's a possibility. If he hath committed sin, they shall be forgiven him. And what he's saying here, that if a person's sick and they want to be healed, if they got sin, they need to take care of that too. Sin can hinder our prayers for healing. I'm not going to preach on that. But then adding another thought to what he just had said about committing sin, confess your faults one to another and pray one for another that you may be healed. And then he mentions the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much and give us the example of Elijah. Confess your faults one to another. Now, 
whenever sin is committed, of course, we are to confess to God. Uh, when you, in fact, confession and repentance towards God is what brings forgiveness. But here he's talking about something else. Uh, he's talking about confessing to one another. Confession that, that needs to be expressed between Christians and, and then they are to confess their faults, pray for one another that they may be healed. This confessing is to someone, or maybe more than one, but someone whom you have wronged. It's con confession. Somebody said, what is confession? Confessing is admitting guilt. That's what it is. It's saying, I've done it, and I've done it for the wrong reason. I, I sinned, I'm sorry, and will you please forgive me? Confessing of sins is not an easy thing. But it's something that is necessary for fellowship among Christians. If it is known by a fellow Christian that you have sinned, either uh, they know uh, personally they've seen you or they heard you and they know personally or they have been told by someone uh, what you have done, that undermines fellowship. It undermines confidence. It undermines, my friend, our ability to worship God together. Uh, it's one of the things that keeps people from being able to, to really worship God from the depths of their heart. Now, I've got some questions here. First one, what sins are to be confessed? People are not required or bound to reveal and confess every sin. You're not bound to confess every sin to everybody. And that's not what he's talking about here at all. In fact, the practice of, of publicly confessing your private sins is a hindrance to the purity and holiness of the church. I have seen people, my friend, get up and testify of the terrible life they lived in sin and go into some detail, and instead of having a good effect, it has the wrong kind of effect. Sometimes you need to just simply tell that you have sinned without going into the detail. Amen? Especially private sins. My friend, there's some things that, that are not to be talked about publicly, so to speak. But what sins is he talking about? Well, the answer is primarily sins committed against another person. And in this context, sins among Christians. where one brother uh, wrongs another. Somebody say, oh, that never happened. Oh, yes, it does. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians, he said, here's brother going against brother uh, in, in, uh, in legal court to settle matter. 
Paul said, shame on you. And don't you have somebody in the congregation that's got the character to judge this thing instead of taking it to, to court? He also mentioned, my friend, uh, the division among them over preachers. Somebody said, I like this preacher. Somebody else said, I like that one. And, and uh, it was... They was fighting over preachers. The preachers were not fighting one another. The people was fighting them over them. Well, there are difficulties that arise. And I'm not going into all of them, but sin that is committed against a Christian brother or sister. You ought to confess, first of all, to the one or ones, my friend, that you have wronged. That's not an easy thing to do, but to go to a person and say, I have sinned against you, uh, and then you might tell, I've lied on you. I ha I've had people come to me and say, Brother Yoder, uh, I've, I've lied about you. I told people things that were not true, but so that, that well, that they could be, be excused for their conduct and for what they were doing. Sins committed in the presence of others or sins that are committed and people have knowledge of them. See, the thing here is that when people know that you have done wrong, then there needs to be confession of that. And if it's, it's, if it's public knowledge, there needs to be Public confession. If it's a private matter, then it needs to be confessed privately. But sins, my friend, that are committed in the presence of others, they seen you, they heard you, and uh, or they've heard it from others and they have knowledge of it. Any sin that is a reproach to the church. Uh, Second message I preached here was living above reproach and, and keeping your reputation so that, that people would have confidence in you and in the church. And uh, when you do things that are sinful, improper behavior, my friend, that is condemned by almost everybody and people know, I say again that it needs to be confessed. Anything that causes people to lose confidence in you. And you know, they know about it. Then you need to address that. This includes, you know, sins like lying, immorality, cheating, etc. Those type of sins. And then also it can include things like being abusive. Let's just say there's a husband here that is abusive towards his wife. He, 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 he all the time criticizing her, putting her down, calling her names. And, and people become aware of that. Now, that's a sin, by the way. Amen. I know you're afraid to say amen. But I'm telling you, that when people know that you're abusive, 
to your children, to your, to your wife, or to other people. Suppose you have a position in, uh, in the place of your employment, a position of authority, to abuse those that are under you, to mistreat them, uh, to be harsh, to be angry. Those sins need to be confessed. I have asked my children to forgive me. I've asked my wife to forgive me. Remember one time something happened to my tractor and I thought for sure one of those children had done it. I had seven children. And, uh, but I lined them up and, and uh, I told them that if they told me who'd done it, a hole, a square hole blowed in the manifold on my tractor. And, and, and my screwdriver just hit that thing. I thought one of the kids took that screwdriver and, and made that hole. So I went down and I said, now, I started with the oldest and went down, and I said, if you don't, if somebody don't confess, I'm going to give you all a spanking. <laughs> well, none of them confessed, <laughs> because none of them was guilty. And I did spank them, hoping that the thread of it would be enough. But I was wrong. I was wrong. I'd done them wrong. And I went out a, a week or two after that, sometime after that, started up that tractor, and pow! Another hole just like that <laughs> came into the manifold. The manifold was just rusted enough that it was blowing its own hole. And I gathered the children in the kitchen. And I got down on my knees and asked their forgiveness. I said, Daddy, he's done you wrong. I'm telling you, friend, that if you let things like that go in your home, on the job, in the church, when you refuse to confess, when you know you've done something wrong, People are going to lose confidence in you. People are not going to believe you're honest. They're not going to believe that you're an honest person. I say again that when we have sinned, we need to confess it. Amen? All right, let's move on. What is implied in obeying the commandment to confess your sins? To begin with, a person needs to be thoroughly convinced of his or her guilt. That's the first step. You cannot confess something that you do not sense your own guilt. And know that you're, you've done wrong. If you listen to your conscience, 
If you be quiet and listen to your conscience, your conscience sometimes is trying to tell you that you acted wrong. You, what you said, what you've done was something that God would not approve of. And I say again that unless you're convinced, my friend, that, that you're guilty, confession requires not only admitting the fact, but admitting the guilt. So many times people make shallow confessions. They confess the fact, but then they excuse it. They blame somebody else, offer all kinds of excuses, and they, they're trying to avoid the guilt of the fact. But true confession, my friend, not only admits the fact, but it also, it also admits, my friend, the wickedness or the guilt of what they've done. A person, third thing, a person must renounce and quit the sin and be rid of it. Confession is little more than an insult without true repentance. You don't only confess, but you, you change. You quit doing it. You, by the grace of God, you say, never again. I'm sorry I've done this, but never again. I'm going, I'm going to live a life that's pleasing to God. Proverbs 28, 13. He that covereth his sin shall not prosper. <laughs> Boy, that's so true. You can't prosper spiritually or even some, sometimes in other ways if you cover your sin. The quickest way, if you're in business, the quickest way to go out of business is treat people in the wrong way. Because sooner or later, somebody's going to tell Somebody, and that somebody going to tell somebody else and tell, until you won't have anybody that has confidence in you to call you to do the work that they need to have done. He that covereth his sin shall not prosper, but whosoever confesseth and forsaketh them shall have mercy. Not only confession, but forsaking. Turning away from it. Quitting it. Amen? Quitting it. Stopping it. And in true confession, it means that you're, you're sorry enough that you'll quit doing it. You'll quit doing it. Godly sorrow leadeth to repentance. And repentance is turning away from it. That means you must demonstrate when you ask somebody to forgive you, you must demonstrate an honest determination not to do that again. Otherwise, it's meaningless. If you continue it, it's meaningless. Can I have a volunteer just a minute? Anybody want to volunteer? I want to illustrate something. You want to volunteer? Young man, what about you? You look like you need a job. 
Just sit down here a minute. I've, I've illustrated Just sit down there. If I, if I wrong this brother, I slap him upside the jaw, you know. And I say, I'm sorry. I, I'm sorry that I've done that. I really am. I'm, I mean it. Would he believe me? Why? Go ahead and sit down. Why won't he believe me? Because if I was really sorry, I'd do what? I'd quit it. A husband that abuses his wife, and I don't know why this, this, this is coming back to me again. wasn't even in any of my notes. But a husband that abuses his wife or his children and then asks forgiveness. Says, honey, I'm sorry. I really didn't mean it. And then the next time he's frustrated or angry, takes it out on her. She's going to get to a place she don't believe in. The same way with children. Right? Right. You've got to demonstrate an honest determination. I am going to quit doing that. Third thing I want to mention, the person must humble themselves or himself or herself, whether it's a man or a woman. Humility is a difficult thing. Most people are too proud, my friend, to honestly confess. They, they're just too proud. They won't make an honest confession. Oh, they might admit the fact uh, or at least... Uh, say, well, maybe, maybe I did do wrong. But they won't accept the guilt. They won't accept the guilt of it. And true humility, my friend, listen to you. This is something I really believe. True humility is a willingness to admit what you know to be true about yourself. It's a willingness to admit. Somebody says, you're selfish. And true humility, if you are selfish, true humility says, yes, I am. That's me. That's me. That's what true confession is. It's true humility. It's admitting, you know it's true. You know in your heart of heart it's true. But humility is a willingness to admit that it is true. A willingness to admit what you know, my friend, is true about yourself. Humility is difficult because it unmasks who you really are. It takes, off, takes all the wrapping off and you see truly who you are. Humility, my friend, Unmask us for who we really are. And what that means is that you're willing to own up to the whole truth. You're willing to own up to the whole truth. Amen? The scriptures require a full and free confession. Somebody said, what do you mean by that? Sometimes confessions are 
restrained and guarded confessions. They're restrained. Uh, they, they, they only go so far. They're, uh, they're, they're guarded. They're, what they're doing, they're trying to guard their reputation. And they, most time, in a restrained and guarded confession, the person, my friend, is, is just simply trying to avoid saying he's guilty or she's saying he, that she's guilty. The spirit and the manner of confession must satisfy the wrong person. I had a man in a congregation that I pastored years ago that uh, he was involved in immorality. And uh, to use a modern slang, he's a womanizer. And, but he was a professed Christian and tried to keep it hidden and secret. And uh, I, was, I was a young pastor my first full-time pastor, I was 24 years old. I didn't have a whole lot of experience and not a whole lot of wisdom. But someone informed me that the neighbor woman uh, accused him of making passes at her. Well, she had furnace trouble. He went over there to fix her furnace and he had other things on his mind. And so I went to his home and I confronted him with that. And he denied it. I mean, just flat out denied, no, there's no truth. I said, okay, get your coat on. We're going over to the neighbors. We're going to ask her. And when I'd done that, he said, no, no. Uh, yeah, I did. I did. He confessed. Yeah, I did. And I talked to him then. I said, wouldn't you like to ask God to forgive you? Yeah, I, I, that's okay, yeah. He got down and he prayed the coldest formal prayer I ever heard. His heart was not in it. Amen. And then when he stood up, he said, are you satisfied now? And I said, it's not a matter of whether I'm satisfied or not. It's a matter of whether God's satisfied. And I told him that he couldn't have part in the service until this matter was cleared up. Well, things happened, but anyhow, I told him not to testify or pray except to come to the altar and pray. Well, he thought I was bluffing, so he got up and testified. And I'd done something I never have done since, but I rebuked him publicly and called him publicly. I called him a black-hearted hypocrite. And boy, people in the congregation, just like some of you, they thought, oh, that, that's so harsh, so harsh. And he got angry. Some of his uh, children did too. Anyway, he quit. He was gone for a couple of months. And then he come back. And when he come back, the very first service, 
God was probably working on him all that time. But when he come back, he come to the altar. And he confessed. He confessed in a far different attitude. A far different uh, way. And he had told, uh, told some people that, hey, I've been in the church of God. He, was, he had been a Roman Catholic. And he'd been in the church of God for 25 years. He said, other pastors knew about me, but they didn't do anything about it. They wasn't acting like Brother Yoder's acting. And I took, I took some heat from that, just to be honest with you. And, but I was trying to wake him up. Sometimes it takes some drastic measures to wake people up. But he come to the altar and he was crying and praying and he confessed his immorality and other things that he had done. And then before he was finished, he said, Brother Yoder, I want to tell you something. And what he told me, he confessed that he was a practicing Roman Catholic in, his, in the privacy of his bedroom. He'd, he'd go in there. I don't know whether he had a statue of Madonna, but that's who they prayed to. He had candles, had a rosary. And all those years, he, even though he's in the Church of God, he's a practicing Catholic. And that's how he overcome all of his immor immorality, excused it. And he confessed to me, he said, he told me what he had been doing and said, I'm sorry, and uh, asked God to forgive him. When he'd done that, I knew that he was really confessing because nobody knew about that. I, I had no idea. And he confessed it. And, and God gave him assurance and he, he continued to come to our congregation till he died. When they came back, he told his wife, he said, he said, all of these preachers knew what I was doing, but said they never dealt with me like Brother Yoder did. And said, I thank him for bringing me to a place of salvation. And when I preached his funeral, I could preach it with assurance. Now let me tell you something, friend. True confession, my friend, true confession will satisfy the wrong person, whoever you've wronged. Because of the attitude of confession, the humility, the openness, the freedom of it. Now, we can play games, you know? A lot of people try to do that. There's a game called church. And some people learn to play it well. They play church. But really, they're not right with God. They really are not right with God. There's things that are unconfessed. The spirit and the manner in which you confess 
ought to satisfy a reasonable person. Now, there's some people you can't satisfy, but that's why I put in there, it ought to satisfy a reasonable person. If a person is not willing to confess fully and honestly, they're not really true hearted. They're not honest in heart. Not really. They're just playing games. They're playing, they're playing a game with their own soul. A game, by the way, if you lose, you go to hell eternally. A forced confession convict, convicted by public disclosure, my friend, is a cheap and shallow thing. Sometimes people, there's a forced confession. They, they would have never confessed if it hadn't been forced on them. But they're forced to confess because of public disclosure. People found out about it. And the only reason why they confess is because they've been found out. True confession ceases to justify and offer excuses. True confession tells the whole truth and throws itself upon the mercy of the wrong person. True confession leaves the consequences entirely in God's hands. I was at a meeting one time, a minister's meeting. There's about 40, 40 of us preachers we gathered there. There were two pastors, Church of God pastors, uh, that were in neighboring congregations, and they had problems in one, and some of the people left and went over, and, and there was this congregations, and the pastors were fighting among themselves. And so they called this minister's meeting and got the two pastors together on the platform and had a moderator ask questions and so on. Well, we started about, I think, 7 o'clock in the morning or 8, something like that. Let's say 8. It started at 8, and about 11.30, I seen, I seen, we're not getting anywhere. And the reason was that those brethren refused to be honest. I got up and I said, brethren, we ain't going to get no place like this. Now, I know I'm a little reckless at times, you know. I know that. But I try to speak the truth of what I feel in my heart because that's the only way we're going to get help. I got up and I said, brethren, we're not getting anywhere because I said, you two brethren are afraid to be honest. I said, you're both afraid that if you admit to the whole truth, you know, a brother would bring up something, an accusation against the other, and, uh, and they were, both of them, were unwilling to admit the whole truth. They were, and I know why. I told them, I said, you're, you're unwilling and afraid to admit the whole truth because you think that you're the one that's opposing you going to use it against you. And I said, because you're not honest, we're just running in circles here. Just running in circles. And 15 minutes after I had made my exhortation, 
they dismissed. We went to eat. And then when we come back, I was standing in the lobby of the church. And one of the brethren came up to me and said, Brother Yoder, were you, were you sincere? Serious about what you said? Absolutely. I'm sincere. You're not getting anywhere. Because I said, you're afraid that if you admit the whole truth, you know, because on both sides, any time like that, there's, there's something gone wrong on both sides. And I said, you're afraid to admit it because you're afraid the other brother is going to use it against you. I said, yes, I believe that. He said, what should I do? I said, you go back in there and you be totally honest. You admit everything that you know in your heart that is true about yourself. And I said, God will bless you for it. And he did that. And it just broke down the meeting. Both of those brothers broke down. People in their congregations that were also attended, they all began to cry. Why? Because they got honest. They got honest. And true confession, my friend, is, is, is something that I'm telling you, you may not believe this, but true confession, admitting all that you know is true about yourself to another person, has power. Has power. Because that other person sees that you're really being honest with them. Why does God require us to confess our faults one to another? It's a principle of justice. You know, justice demands uh, honest confession towards somebody who we have injured. It also, justice also demands restitution. Uh, but there's some things you, you can't do nothing about, you know. It's like ringing a bell. You can't unring it. And all you have to do is ask for forgiveness. There's other things. That if you wronged a person, if you lied on them, well then go, go around and try to gather up the fragments of those lies. If you robbed them of property, restore it. But God requires confession because it's just. It's just. Another reason why God requires it, because it's necessary for your own peace of conscience. Did you know you can, you can tell yourselves lies and, uh, and, and begin to believe them? But your conscience, your conscience, that, that quiet, deep voice says, you know you're wrong. You know you're wrong. And you're just saying, no, I didn't. You blame, make excuses. Peace of conscience is a great thing. Did you know that? Amen. To have peace. Peace of conscience. To be able to look within yourself and truly say, I have honestly done everything to make this right that I know. 
You've heard me say, if you've heard me preach very long, nothing is right until it's made right. It doesn't just automatically become right. It doesn't grow into right. Wrong has to be made right, and this is one of the ingredients, confession. It's also necessary for peace with God. If our conscience condemns us, then we, we can't have confidence. You, you know, when you have a troubled conscience, when you get down to pray, you don't have confidence in your own prayers. You don't have peace because you know, well, as the Bible said, God knows more than our conscience about us. It also tends unconfessed sin tends to destroy fellowship and worship among Christians. Matthew 5, verse 23 and 24. Therefore, if thou bringest thy gift to the altar, and there rememberst that thy brother hath ought against thee, leave there thy gift before the altar, and go thy way. First be reconciled to thy brother, and then come and offer thy gift. Here's a picture of a Israeli coming with leading his lamb, sacrificial lamb. Let's say it's on a leash and he's leading the lamb. And he gets to the altar where it's sacrifice. And God said, you remember that a brother has ought against thee. Tie it up someplace and go make it right. Then come back and offer your gift. Our gifts of worship, my friend, are not acceptable to God if we have unconfessed sin in our life. We first need to be reconciled to each other, and then we can really worship God together. Confession is necessary for fellowship. You know, the person that you wronged may, may have no ill will. They may have already forgiven you in their heart. And they may not even demand confession. Yet, in spite of that, it is impossible to have Christian confidence and fellowship as long as you are unwilling to confess your sins. It, unconfessed sins remain a barrier between you and the person that you've wronged. And until people are satisfied that you're honest and can be trusted, they will not have confidence, and without confidence, their Christian fellowship is an impossible thing. Without confidence in one another, without trust in one another, it's a, it, it's a naturally impossible thing. Listen, all other means and methods of restoring confidence will not be sufficient. You may think that you can simply live it down by good deeds, but the stain of unconfessed sin will not be cleansed in that way. The only way to restore Christian confidence and fellowship is by a mutual 
humble confession of wrongdoing of all who are involved. I know that sounds harsh, but it's the truth, friend. It's the truth. You're never going to regain the confidence of your fellow Christian if you're not willing to go any farther in confession than absolutely compelled to do so. <laughs> you know, circumstances, knowledge, people get knowledge, and uh, one thing's revealed, and then another thing, and, and it's, a, it's, a, it's a forced, forced confession. Listen, it's better to go to the bottom of the matter at the beginning. Pour it all out. The very worst in your confession, pour it all out. Confess what you know is really true about yourself. When you do that, then people's going to know and the church will know that you're honest and you can be trusted. People's confession to me throughout the years of wrongdoing uh, is, is one of the best means of me gaining confidence in them. Public wrongs need to be confessed publicly and private wrongs privately. I'll add this warning and I'm going to close momentarily. Don't allow, friend, listen to me, as one who loves you in the Lord. Don't allow, my friend, a proud heart to trap your soul in eternal ruin. Don't die with unconfessed sin. Another warning, it's not enough to confess only to God if the person that you wronged know about it. Have you wronged somebody? maybe more than one, then go to him or her and confess it. As you sit here this morning, is there anyone who can justifiably have ought against you? If so, go to him. Clear the matter up. And you'll find that you'll be able to worship God in a better way. I know that this is only one thing that can, can be a problem. Brother Todd Watson mentioned other things. Last Sunday I listened to his message. But this is an important thing, friend.
People may not say anything, but to have real confidence, they've got to believe that you're honest and true. To find a totally honest man, I thought of preaching along that line, where Jesus, when he seen Nathaniel, and what was Jesus' testimony about Nathaniel? Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no guile. And the word guile means deceit or, or deception and uh, cunning and uh, covering and so on. Just the opposite of being honest. I forget what philosopher it was said that he'd searched the world to find a totally honest man and never found one. To be totally honest with yourself, with one another, and with God, <laughs> believe me, is a rather rare thing in our day and time. It always has been. It always has. Father, I brought these few thoughts to this people, and I pray, I don't know who needed this because I don't know the internal workings of their heart and conscience. But I pray, Father, that if there's some here that have wronged another person that's here, that they'll, they'll get up from their seat and go to that person right now. In this invitation time, they'll go to that person and say, I've lied about you or I've, I've whatever. Will you forgive me? I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? I pray that thou will help, Lord, that people won't die with unconfessed sin in their life. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand?